My name is Anthony McKay. I'm the CEO of the National Centre on Education and the Economy, and I am joined in the first of a new interview series by Professor Dylan William. I'm delighted that you are with us. This is a series in which we have been fortunate enough to identify uh, global education leaders, those who have actually been advancing our work in very significant ways over a significant period of time. And I want you to know that uh, it's no accident that you are the first that we're interviewing. Uh, you are a friend of NCEE and your work is recognised globally. And you, you have your emeritus professorship uh, in assessment at University College London. But you continue to operate across multiple geographies at every level of the system, classrooms through to providing advice uh, to ministers. So it's a thrill for us to invite you at a time when you have just released, and I, I'm holding this up in a way that is appropriately promotional, uh, your most recent book, Creating the Schools Our Children Need. So before I begin, let me just say once again, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. And this book has a subtitle, Why What We're Doing Now Won't Help Much. So what are we doing now that's not helping much? I think particularly in the United States, we're doing a lot of things that may have small effects on how much children learn, but that they are nothing like big enough to give young people a chance at a good life in the world that's coming. Yeah. So what we're seeing is the world of work is becoming more complex. Uh, participation in democracy is becoming more complex. Young people need to be empowered to take control over their lives. And work is becoming more complex. So for young people to have a good shot at a good life, then education systems need to improve student achievement. And my concern is that while a lot of the things that we're doing will have some effect, they're not going to be anything like the effects that we need. And they're going to be expensive. And they're going to be difficult to implement in terms of political capital. So many people argue for things like um, paying good teachers more. Yeah. It turns out that the effects are very small, and you have to pay teachers an awful lot more to have an, an impact. Another approach would be to get smarter people into teaching. But that takes a long time. There isn't any evidence that it's going to be effective. And we already have some pretty smart people in teaching in the United States anyway. So it's not clear to me that that's solving a problem we've got. The other idea, of course, is firing bad teachers. Who could be against firing bad teachers? Of course we want to fire bad teachers. I don't want bad teachers in the classroom. It turns out, however, to be much more difficult than people imagine to identify who the bad teachers are. Because, as John Mason says, teaching takes place in time, but learning takes place over time. Mm -hmm. So a teacher that you observe might seem ineffective, but the students are retaining quite a lot of what is going on in the classroom because they're thinking. Whereas other teachers, they present the stuff very clearly, seem like a very lucid lesson, everybody thinks it's a wonderful lesson, but because the students weren't thinking that hard, a lot of it gets forgotten. So what we're discovering is that the performance of students in a learning task in the classroom is actually a very poor guide to how much learning takes place. So what I'm arguing for is a bit more humility about whether we know good teaching when we see it. Because Learning is a change in long-term memory. If you teach students to do something today they've forgotten in six weeks' time, you haven't taught them anything. So if these things are not making the difference, the effect sizes that we want 
as you say, particularly given that the expectations we now have for the kind of learning we want all young people to have, given a new world of work, yeah? Where would you focus now your discretionary effort to get the kind of outcomes that we are after? Well, when you look at a framework that takes into account all these things, yeah. so first of all, does this innovation solve a problem that we've actually got? Yeah. You know, if you've got teachers not turning up for work, then incentives to make them turn up for work would be helpful. But if they're turning up for work, that's a waste of money. Then you need to think about, if we do this, how much extra learning will we get? People say research shows this improves learning. But for me, the important issue is, by how much does it improve learning? Because you can't take a view about the value of an innovation unless you know how much extra student achievement will you get. And I particularly like to express this in terms of extra months per year. Am I going to get extra one month year, two months, three months? And then, of course, there's the issue of cost. People often get seduced by substantial increases in the rate of learning. And they say, we should do that. Yeah. But if it's an expensive thing to produce, then maybe we shouldn't. So for me, there's a cost-benefit analysis that we need to do. You know, how much extra achievement will we get? And how much is it going to cost us to achieve that? Because sometimes small effects can be very effective if they're not very expensive. Yeah. But the thing you have to watch for also is sometimes small effects can be useful, but they're corrosive. So for example, getting teachers to compete for bonuses might give you a small effect. But if you have teachers competing rather than collaborating, then you might make it much more difficult to produce other improvements. So if we apply that criteria, a number of approaches that we might be taking now would not meet that criteria. What would meet the criteria? I think there are two things. When you look at a cost-benefit framework and solutions that could be implemented in American schools, I think two things stand out as being far more cost-effective than everything else. The first one is recognizing the role of knowledge in the curriculum. Yep. So recently people have got seduced by this idea of 21st century skills, and I want students to communicate, to collaborate, to be able to solve problems, to be creative, and to th think critically. I, I, I want those things. The danger when you start thinking of those things as skills is you think they're transferable from one discipline to another. And the one thing we've learned is that critical thinking is not a skill. It's a collection of superficially similar skills that are actually completely different. We know this because no amount of training students to think critically in history has any impact on their ability to think critically in mathematics. So There's no transfer effect. There's no transfer. So I, I like the idea of 21st century skills as a way of broadening our curriculum. So when we're teaching mathematics, are we doing collaboration and communication and creativity and critical thinking and problem solving and applying the same checklist to the other subjects as well? So the skills agenda, I think, takes us down the wrong path. What we need to understand, as many cognitive scientists have said, really what distinguishes experts from novices in most disciplines is the amount of knowledge they have and the rich connections between that, that knowledge. So we need to put knowledge back into the curriculum. The reason that people are good at what they do is because they have lots of knowledge, well-organized, able to actually bring it up at a moment's notice just because it's relevant to that particular issue. And so I think we need to recognize that skills are important, but they're not transferable. What makes somebody specifically good in a specific domain is the amount of knowledge they have of that domain. But knowledge is not the same as when you say lots of knowledge. You don't necessarily mean lots of content. 
Well, I do mean content amongst other things, but knowledge is everything that you remember. Right. So I often ask people, do you know how to ride a bicycle? Yeah. And they say yes. And I said, so that's knowledge. So basically, it's all long-term memory. Your, no your knowledge of how to ride a bicycle is stored in long-term memory, along with multiplication facts and all those other things. And I think that's really important because people often say, well, isn't it good if students, you know, they don't know what six sixes are, but they know that three sixes is 18 and they can double it to get 36. No, it's not good because they've wasted valuable brain processing space doing the calculation, whereas the person who knows that six sixes is 36 has already solved the problem. So what we see is the more people know about a particular area, the more effective they are. So the task of the educator here is to be deeply in the game of knowledge generation, right, for young people, committed to long-term memory. Yes, it has to be long-term memory to be useful. The, the, the mistake we've made is to think that people need to improve their thinking skills. What we need to give them is more stuff to think with. Yeah. Okay. That's what makes people powerful thinkers, is lots of examples, lots of knowledge, lots of experiences that say, ah, yes, this is like this, and therefore they think more powerfully. Okay, so lever one, a knowledge-rich curriculum. Yeah. What's your second? The second one is to get away from this idea that we should evaluate and grade and measure teachers and instead create a culture where every single teacher believes they need to improve, not because they're not good enough, but because they can be even better. And that improvement has to be focused on the things with the biggest payoff for children. So we could actually get teachers to teach students in their preferred learning style. That would, that would change what teachers do. Unfortunately, there is no payoff for children because you do not learn more when you're taught in your preferred learning style. So the danger here is we could improve teachers in ways that do not benefit children. Mm -hmm. And that's where the research evidence comes in. Yep. Research will never tell teachers what to do. Well, what it can do is to say, developing your practice in this area is more likely to help your children than developing your practice in a different area. And when we look at the research evidence, particularly in terms of the cost-benefit analysis and its practical implementation in real classrooms, there is one thing that stands out head and shoulders above the rest, and that is what I call classroom formative assessment. The idea is that teachers find out where their students learned before they move on. Good teaching starts from where the students are, and students do not reliably learn what we teach, so you need to find out what the students did learn before you move on. And, and, and this is not uh, rocket science, I, uh, question mark, because I've often, uh, I think, had the sense that this is a huge commitment, it's an enormous amount of professional learning and training to be able to be in the game of formative assessment, and it's a long-term commitment. You've sometimes talk, talked about this as being rapid cycle. So just explain to me why this is completely doable. Well, for example, this, the decision that most teachers make most times during a working day is this. Yeah. Do I need to go over this point one more time or can I move on to the next thing? Yeah. They typically ask a question. Six students raise their hands. The teacher picks on one of those students. And if that student gives a correct answer, the teacher says, good, and moves on. We're fine for the group. And so what I point out is that the teacher is making a decision about the learning needs of a diverse group of individuals based on the responses of one or two confident individuals. And that just can't be smart. So what I'm suggesting is you might actually ask a question that enables you to get responses from every single student. For example, with some electronic voting system, mini whiteboards, or even more simply, a multiple choice question where students hold up one, two, three, four, or five fingers according to whether they think the answer is A, B, C, D, or E. 
and that way the teacher gets better evidence. In other words, we improve teachers' instructional decision-making by improving the quality of evidence that they have for those decisions. And your argument would be that this is where our investment should go. You're not suggesting we shouldn't improve teacher preparation or, as you said earlier, if we can attract some of the best and the brightest into the profession, wholly desirable, but you're actually saying, hold on, the most important thing is to take the profession we have now in schools and work with them systematically over a period of time, and that's where you're going to get the gains in learning for young people. That is true, but I think they're also bound up with each other. So, for example, I don't want the best and the brightest if they only want to teach the highest achieving students, for right. example. I don't want the best and brightest if they're not going to stay in teaching, because most teachers are far more effective after two or three years than they were in their first year. So schemes like Teach First are, or Teach for America aren't going to have a big impact, because when those teachers are just getting into their stride, they often leave. So for me, the most important question for any teacher is, do you like working with young people? Because if you do, it's the best job in the world, and if you don't, the next 40 years are going to be really depressing. Yeah. So the really important thing is getting those people who want to carry on getting better for the rest of their careers, not because they're not good enough, but because they can be even better and they can change students' lives as a result. For me, getting teachers with the, in the profession with that kind of attitude, where they don't compare themselves to everybody else, but they just say, how can I use my colleagues' support just to continually get better until I retire? That's the big idea. Okay, in another interview, we might decide to have a conversation about alternative pathways into teaching, mm -hmm. the relative merits of Teach for America, Teach First. That's a fantastic area of controversy. Mm -hmm. And there's actually, to some extent, evidence that the retention now of those who are going through that route is gaining ground. But that's another debate. But the thing I want to do now is I ask you this. So I now know what to do less of mm -hmm. if I apply the criteria mm -hmm. that you've outlined. And I know what to do more of. Mm -hmm. I'm now in a district. I'm leading the district. I'm a superintendent. I'm a member of the district leadership team. How do I go about ensuring that the schools in my district right, can systematically start to take an approach that's going to have the results that you're talking about? If we're having this conversation internationally, and it will to some extent be one that we share with other colleagues, every context, culture, way of organising schools is different. There's something unique in the US about the district as the unit of analysis. What would you say to district leadership about how they should go about the decision-making about where they put their resources, where they put their discretionary effort, what they do less of, what they do more of? Well, I think the first step is to talk to the district because the districts are so different. In Maryland and Florida, they're organized on a county basis. In Hawaii, it's one district for the whole state. In other districts like New Jersey, you've got 630 school districts, some of which don't even have schools. So you have this incredible diversity of, of patterns. And yeah. so I think finding out what's going on on the ground, doing some surveying to see, are there any things that are going on now that will get in the way? Because formative assessment is a very kind of flexible mechanism. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it's powerful because teachers get it. If a superintendent introduces a monitoring system where we test the kids every six to 10 weeks just to check they're making progress, that feels to teachers like it's serving the superintendent's agenda. Yes. But asking teachers, did your students just learn what you taught them? Every teacher I've ever, get, I've ever met gets that that's part of their day job. So we're actually doing a starting from a point which teachers feel is an important part of their practice. And we're just saying to them, you'll make better instructional decisions if the quality of evidence you have about the range of responses in your students 
is better. So the enabling conditions for those practices to flourish is crucial. I mean, yep. if I've actually got an inhospitable learning environment here, uh, and it's to some extent is putting blockages in the way of me being able to do effective formative assessment, uh, is clearly not helpful. If I have got a leader, a principal, that doesn't privilege the time that I will need to think uh, reflectively about the work that I've done, to come together with other colleagues, to be able to share and get feedback. I mean, there's a whole range of practices that clearly come together to make this work. But I need to be in an environment where that is at least acknowledged, even incentivised? Well, I, I, because of the diversity of school districts, I'm now very cautious about saying that anything is absolutely essential. Okay. People always say, you know, it's absolutely essential that this is in place before this happens. And yeah. I'm, I've just got so many examples where it just, that's just not true. Yeah. The fact is that something has flourished in the most barren of circumstances. So I think the important thing is to just talk to people and say, well, could you try this? Could you try, rather than having a graded assessment every two weeks, have one every month and make the alternate one a formative assessment of students given feedback about how to improve the piece of work rather than given a grade. So you just look for the kinds of places where you could begin to take small steps so the teachers can see the impact of these, more, of these formative assessment practices on their students' engagement and on their achievement. Okay, and finally, what about state level? Does there need to be an enabling state level policy that acknowledges, that uh, privileges, that supports uh, precisely the kind of classroom practices that we know are going to have the greatest impact on young people's learning. How do you handle the state, the district, the school? Well, I think the first thing to do is to engage in a conversation at the state level to see whether there's any kind of flexibility there. Yeah. But ultimately, in many states there isn't because this is primarily a political process. And so what you do is you take the state policies and even the federal policies as being the backdrop against which districts have to innovate. And so it's like the rules of the game. Yeah. You, you, you try to understand the constraints and then try to find solutions that work within those constraints to further the mission of the school. Dylan? Thank you. This conversation is an incentive um, to acquire this book. I hope so. And there's no royalties coming to me? None at all. I hope there are some coming to you. It's very small. <laughs> but I want to say, this really is uh, a fantastic contribution at a time when we need precisely this conversation. Thank you very much indeed.